going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Greetings and salutations, friends. A happy Thursday, although it is a, a bit of a, a tough Thursday to start off with. I mean, you hear the, the story right off the top of the news with Brenda there, and you heard this, uh, the news conference live with Calgary Police today is that case of a missing woman and her daughter sounds like it's turned into a homicide investigation. Police saying just a short time ago that they have a suspect in custody. No charges have been laid to this point yet. We will continue to keep a watchful eye because there are a bunch of different searches happening around uh, the city and outside city limits as well right now, trying to find out what exactly happened here. I mean, the, the big question mark is if they're not alive, what happened to Jasmine Lovett and her 22-month-old daughter, Aaliyah Sanderson? So there's a lot of question marks. Uh, there's They disappeared from Cranston over a week ago, suspecting custody for questioning. Uh, police also saying the toddler's father is cooperating with the investigation and is not a suspect this time. Again, we'll keep uh, keep a close eye on things. We're going to have Nancy Hickst on uh, from Global News just after 4 o'clock, and we're going to dive into what exactly, again, police were saying, and we'll uh, revisit some of that audio from Staff Sergeant Martin Chavetta after 5 o'clock as well. And if anything does develop over the next couple of hours here as the show develops, we will continue to keep you apprised of the situation. On to other things that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk screen time with toddlers right off the bat. Uh, Professor of Nursing at at UBC, Wendy Hall, will join us in just a few minutes as the World Health Organization coming out with some guidelines for children And it's one of those fascinating discussions in my eyes because I see a lot of parents in my social circles who take different approaches to it. And is there a right approach? Is there a wrong approach? I mean, you don't want to deprive a kid of having screen time and getting used to the technology. At the same time, you don't want them to be addicted to it at, you know, a year or two years old. So how do you find that happy medium? Well, we hope Wendy will be able to help answer some of those questions in just a couple of minutes. After four o'clock, we'll also dive into uh, affordable housing in our city. Home Space CEO Bernadette Majdell will join us to talk about yesterday's announcement surrounding, uh, I believe it's a 74 unit uh, downtown space that will be uh, built hopefully by fall of next year but also talk about the need right now in our city and what we need to uh, match up with that need as well. So we'll talk to Bernadette about that. We'll also talk the film industry in Alberta. This is something that kind of made me, uh, I kind of did one of those whoa moments. Uh, Kevin Hart took to Instagram uh, a couple, was a week ago or so, uh, where he's talking about how blessed he is because uh, he's filming Jumanji out in the Rockies. And so he posted a great video and kind of had a little bit of fun with it. We'll revisit that, but we'll also talk to local director Michael Peterson about what the buzz is around Alberta's production and movie and television scene. Why are we seeing some of these big name projects, whether it's Jumanji or there's there was talk about Ghostbusters coming to town or uh, there's so many different projects that are happening already and some that are coming. What is the buzz? Michael Peterson will uh, dive into that for us. We'll also uh, talk a little bit about Stronghold. Uh, Stronghold, uh, Stronghold founder uh, Nathan Fawaz will join us in, after 5.30 to talk about uh, the project that they are up, uh, they are putting together. And Mayor Nenshi talking a little white supremacy earlier today. I want to revisit that audio clip after 5 o'clock as well. Uh, some pertinent words and something that he, he and I chatted about 
very briefly, a few weeks ago, it was during the uh, provincial election campaign, and he said, I want to go on the show and talk more in depth about this. We haven't arranged it quite yet. But it's a really, we got into an animated discussion about the the need to have this conversation. And as he puts it, stop pussyfooting around. And so I'll play that full clip and give you a little bit more context on that after 5 o'clock. We're going to start things off, though, talking about the World Health Organization and screen time for your kids next with Wendy Hall from UBC. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Now, let's turn our attention to a topic that has been front and center for a lot of friends in my social circles is when do you start bringing kids into the fold and holding a phone? I have some who they've got two or two and a half year olds who are like, nope, not touching it at all. And then others who are saying, hey, you know what? It's just a necessity and kids need to start learning this stuff sooner rather than later. New report from the World Health Organization just over the last couple of days releasing new guidelines on screen time, physical activity and sleep in children under five. And instead of grouping everybody between the ages of newborn and five together, they really go in depth on this one and go by age demographic. And the overwhelming response on this and the headline reads in today's parent is babies and toddlers should have no screen time according to the world health organization someone who's written a lot about this very topic is wendy hall a professor of nursing at the university of british columbia and she joins us now wendy thank you so much for the time today thanks very much joe happy to be with you as you go through the report anything really take you by surprise or anything that uh, confirms maybe some of the things that you've looked into Having uh, read the report, I have to say there's nothing that really takes me by by a lot of surprise. Uh, it pretty much confirms uh, what some of my concerns have been for some time now. What is it about screen time, especially with the younger children, that should be concerning to young parents? Well, there's quite a few things that have been associated with uh, young children having <clears throat> excuse me a lot of exposure to screens. Uh, one of the areas that uh, has been identified is that, especially the ones that are younger than two, uh, learning more quickly and accurately when they're in live situations rather than watching a video display or, or television and ending up with poor language development if they're spending a lot of time watching television. Also, there's a recent study that was done in England that showed that uh, infants and toddlers who were using touchscreens daily slept for significantly shorter periods of night and took more time to settle at night. And that's of concern to me because I've done a lot of work in the area of sleep research, and I know that um, children who are getting inadequate amounts of sleep, that has implications for their health and well-being in a number of areas. Develop their language development, their memories, um, their risk for obesity, etc. So when you put that together with um, children who are using screens, as raised in the WHO report, uh, spending less time being physically active, then that definitely causes some consternation. Especially in the younger children, I would assume a big part of that whole not being able to get to sleep is the idea that you're being almost overstimulated because you have so many, you know, I'll call it bells and whistles, but you've got so much going on right in front of your eyes. Yes, and we know that uh, software developers have deliberately developed these kinds of programs to stimulate uh, 
dopamine centers in the brain, which is which are our pleasure centers. So when those are getting stimulated constantly by what the children are watching, it's hard to come down, for want of a better word, in quotation marks, after uh, they've had that experience. From that standpoint, then, I know a lot of parents will turn around and say, but they need to get up with the times because clearly technology is always advancing. And the longer you wait, the the longer it's going to take for them to get back in with their, their peers. Is there a happy medium to be reached where they can be brought to or have the technology in their hands, but not in an overly excessive fashion? That's a great question. I think the World Health Organization has tried to go for sort of middle ground on this because they've really not recommended any screen time for infants that are less than one or less than two years of age. Um, But uh, what they have recommended uh, for the older infants, so those aged two years and older, uh, say three to four, is that they should have no more than an hour of screen time a day. So they're trying to, to strike a balance there. From the standpoint, especially the obesity part always kind of makes me kind of look up and go, wow, that's an eye-opening part of it is because all of a sudden you are not doing the activities of problem solving or going out and playing or the, the multitude of all other things that you could be doing. I mean, this is, a, this is an epidemic that starts from a very young age and we can get to the bottom of it uh, just by heeding the advice here by the WHO. Yes, and I think the other thing that they're really emphasizing is to avoid having children, I forget exactly the terminology they use, but it's something along, oh, restrained um, for extended periods in the day. And by restrained, it's not meant to be pejorative. It's just talking about things like uh, spending a lot of time in high chairs or spending a lot of time in strollers or or being strapped on a caregiver's back. And... um, what they're suggesting is those kids need opportunities to be out moving at, rather than being in these um, uh, kind of forced uh, positions where they, they can't be active. So for the younger kids, they really recommend tummy time where they're on a blanket and left on their tummies and moving around. Um, that's really good for their growth and development. And for the older kids, uh, they're really recommending that they get outside and get some activity. And, and if you think about it, it takes parents longer to do things when they have a child walking with them because little legs are shorter than long legs and mm-hmm. it takes some more time. But there's some older kids who could definitely walk short distances rather than being in strollers all the time. And that would be a really good way to, to encourage their activity. I know it's it's easy for parents sometimes to go, you know what, here's the screen, I've got a million other things to do. Uh, at the same time, you have to be a parent at the end of the day as well and say, okay, we're going to limit this or we're not going to allow it. And even if you're crying and bawling, at some point you're going to get used to this and you have to be the authoritarian in a sense uh, to make sure that the message get, gets across so you don't develop bad habits down the road. Well, that's a fair point, Joe. I mean, parents are there to be the limit setters for children because children don't know how to set their own limits. I mean, it's screen time's not all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, they looked at toddlers uh, with more screen time and said that they have earlier fine motor development, which makes sense because they're manipulating what's going on on the screen. Um, and also, they suggested that, you know, mobile media can be used to distract children experiencing distress. Now, when they say that, they don't mean 
anytime the child gets upset to hand them a screen, but more, you know, if they're really just, maybe they've just, I don't know, had a major incident where they've really hurt themselves or something like that, you could use that to distract them slightly. And and also, obviously, if you've got family members who are far away, um, partners, parents, whoever, then, you know, having an opportunity to have a bit of face-to-face contact with distant family members is really valuable. So I, I don't think everybody's completely dumping on screens, but we're we're pretty clear that children need to have limited access to them, and particularly at very young ages. It's all about uh, what you expect out of that time in front of a screen. If you're just hoping that they become the babysitter and you have them plunk in front of a movie or, or a show, it's one thing. It's another to make it educational or another to have an actual purpose behind it is, is sort of the essence of what I'm getting. Yes, and, you know, I think it was the uh, Canadian Pediatric Society that said that if children are using screens, it's so much better for them if they've got an interaction with a parent around it. Mm -hmm. So the parent's pointing out things on the screen and talking to the child about what's on the screen rather than the child being left to use the screen totally independently. Mm -hmm. Wendy, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much for shedding some light for us. Well, thank you very much, Joe. When it comes to affordable housing in our city, there are certainly a lot of moving parts. But at the end of the day, those who need it most are simply looking for a hand up, not necessarily a hand out. And yesterday, big announcement when it comes to another big tower coming to fruition. A 74-unit building on the west end of downtown. Construction is expected to start next month. By fall 2020, Homespace hopes to have that empty lot near the C-Train's red line. Uh, being able to offer affordable renting spaces for those who are homeless or were at risk of becoming homeless. Uh, the CEO for Homespace is Bernadette Majdal, and she joins us now on the program. Bernadette, thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. Let's talk about yesterday's announcement and the 74-unit building that you're hoping to uh, have up within the next couple of years here. Yeah, we're super excited about the building being proposed on 933 Fifth Avenue downtown. It's a partnership between Homespace, the Resolve Campaign, the federal government, and the City of Calgary. So it's an example of all of us working together to produce affordable housing here right in downtown Calgary. Talk about the uh, partnerships and, and what exactly you're hoping to uh, put together when all is said and done and you guys are open, ready to have that, uh, that big ceremony with the ribbon cutting and, and all the cake that is, usually comes along with uh, uh, openings like this. When the building's up and running, really, for us, it becomes all about home. At Homespace, after the construction is complete, we also property manage the building and work with agency partners who provide residents with supports. So for us, once all the construction is done, then that's when um, that's when it becomes about home and our residents and, and having a place to live. Many of our residents are either exiting homelessness or at risk of homelessness, so providing a house and a home for the people who reside with home space is usually the first start um, to improving their lives. When it comes to developing a space like this, what are some of the keys to making sure that it is a successful venture for home space? Um, when we started this project, one of the most important things was reaching out to community and uh, letting them know who we are and what we do and what we're proposing. 
for us, it's important to have community support in the projects that we're building. Uh, beyond that, we have a lot of uh, central community space within the building. So many of our residents will start in terms of building community inside the building and then move on beyond uh, the building into the broader community. But having that space where our agency partners and our residents can um, be together is critical. So there's lots of amenity space within the building. Has that idea surrounding sort of that community space changed over the years? Or how has the development process of uh, building uh, buildings like this changed over the years? Um, I think that there's always been a view of uh, the need for community space. I think really what's changed is our ability to purpose build from a design perspective. Um, you know, when home space first started with buildings, we were doing a lot of purchasing of existing buildings and then trying to convert space into common and community space. I think what's really changed is our ability through the Resolve campaign and through investments from the federal government and the city and the province is, is our ability to purpose build and add in design elements for the folks that we're trying to serve. What kinds of other projects are on the horizon for home space? Uh, right now we have five projects in various stages of development. Uh, we've got the project that was announced downtown and then we also have um, uh, project in Bonest that will be opening this summer uh, in July in partnership with the Resolve Campaign and uh, that one is being built by Jamin Holmes. Uh, we also have uh, several permanent supportive housing buildings. So again, this is a very purpose-built design building that provides 24-7 supports to our residents. How important is it for you guys to be able to develop properties that uh, kind of are, are different? It's not just the same carbon copy every single time, but something that maybe provides something a little different or uh, gives a little bit of a different perspective because not every uh, person who is looking for a home is looking for that exact uh, replica over and over and over again. I think when we're serving vulnerable populations, it's really important to provide choice because ultimately we want our residents to make where they're living their home. And I think part of that is choice. So being able to be present in different communities throughout the city and provide different types of housing options, I think is critical for the folks that live in home space buildings to call their place a home. So I think providing that choice and having that variety is critical. And in terms of developing, that's probably one of the most important things in the city of Calgary right now. If we look at where Calgary is via other large cities across the country, we're short about 15,000 units of affordable housing. Um, most big cities have about 6% of their rental stock as affordable housing. Calgary only has 36 So I think, you know, the, the ability to develop new units is going to be critical as we continue to grow as a city. Mm -hmm, absolutely. From that, that standpoint, then, when you look at the numbers and you look at all that's, that's been happening, uh, what is the key going forward? Is it just a matter of uh, getting more wheels in motion on, on getting projects approved and then built? Or is it finding locations? Or what is sort of next in terms of trying to uh, to face this, uh, what seems like a bit of an uphill battle? I think for us, you know, land is always uh, the first piece and always a critical piece. And we were fortunate on this site uh, with the City of Calgary that this land was provided through their um, land transfer program for affordable housing. So I think that's a really important starting point. 
But beyond that, in order to build any apartment building uh, for purpose-built rental um, on an affordable level, we need investment. And so in this case, we had a private donor, we had uh, federal investment, and then the city land. Many of our other buildings have included provincial investment. So I think in order for us to build a, a building and have it available for affordable housing, it requires investment from various levels of government, uh, in this case, the private sector. So I think that, that that's the big hurdle going forward is making sure we have a continuous stream of investment that will allow us to build new buildings. I am curious. So what defines success on a building when you guys develop it? Um, I think, you know, success at the end of the day is that we've got um, our buildings full uh, with residents who feel safe and secure. Um, to, for us, that, that's what it's about. Our, our vision at Home Space is a home for everyone in our community. And I think when our residents make that building a home and feel safe, um, that's success for us. Bernadette, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thank you so much for shedding a little bit of light into uh, what you guys have been uh, working on over the last little while. Thanks for the chat. Bernadette Majdell, the CEO of Home Space, as they have uh, made the announcement yesterday surrounding the 74-unit uh, affordable housing structure on the west end of downtown. Again, construction set to start next month. Uh, construction expected to end by the fall of 2020. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see once all the bells and whistles are done, how that thing looks by the end of the day. Uh, a very good text coming in saying, what is considered affordable rent? It's a great question because it's one of the things I remember, this is 10 years ago or so, I remember covering a story for, it was Attainable Homes, and I remember going in and they said the middle middle income in the city was fifty to $80,000, and I went, oh, at the time, I'm low income? It was just one of those stark moments. Again, that was 10 years ago. I don't know what that is now, what's considered to be, uh, we should get into the numbers maybe next week. We'll get to that at some point. If you're on social media, in particular Instagram, you might have noticed Kevin Hart uh, sending out a little video message, and here's a little part of it. I'm telling you, man, there's sometimes where you just got to really look and appreciate how amazing God is. This is one of those moments, man. Look at how amazing God is. I take that in. This is breathtaking. I am blown away by the view, the setting, and more importantly, the opportunity. It's just me simply saying thank you, God. Needless to say, he was pretty impressed with the sights of the Rocky Mountains just west of Calgary as he and The Rock, amongst others, are uh, around town filming the new edition of Jumanji. And had me asking a couple of questions around uh, just how flourishing the film and TV industry is right now in this province. And I thought I'd get uh, someone who's right boots on the ground to talk about it now. Michael Peterson's directed a, a few flicks here. He's from Calgary, joins us now on the program. Michael, thanks for the time. Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to be here. What is the buzz around Alberta and Calgary's film and production industry in your eyes? Well, it seems like some of the larger uh, Hollywood-type shows are starting to look at filming here. I believe they've reached capacity for filming in places like British Columbia. This seems like an obvious place to film because we do have great crews. Um, and, you know, the locations are wonderful. So it looks like there's a bunch of stuff coming, but, you know, you never want to uh, 
say things for sure until it's sort of signed and there's boots on the ground. So it's looking optimistic, and I remain uh, cautiously so. What is sort of feel, uh, fueling that? I mean, you talked about the the cruise and that, but how does how do you get that momentum? And how why is it that we're we're suddenly seeing a little bit of a surge in some of the the bigger names thinking about or coming here? I mean, we saw Kevin Hart and and the Jumanji crew here. We've seen uh, a few others here. I mean, there there's a lot of talk here. So what's what's fueling that? Well, I think a big part of it is they've just hit capacity in places like British Columbia, or at least it appears they have with the number of crews and films shooting there, right? So with that happening, they have to go somewhere else. The advantage of the American dollar in Canada uh, gives you a great benefit. We do have a reasonably good tax credit here for certain size productions. So I think all of those things are lending itself towards more people coming to film here again, which is great for the crews. Mm. What do we have to do to maintain that momentum and make sure that when we have these bigger names coming through that they go, oh man, did you know that up in Canada they have this and make sure that you keep the the ball rolling? Yeah, there's probably a couple of things that uh, could be done to help that. One is consistency of productions. Uh, it's great to have these big, big star-driven shows here. You know, they get lots of press and all that. But there's sort of, a, you know, a smaller size film that's really great for sort of the bread and butter, the foundational type things. So just volume and consistency. Those two things will, uh, you know, keep crews trained, allow new crews to grow into their position with the right experience. Uh, second to that, I would think that if they revise the tax credit, they could make it more competitive and they could uh, change sort of how the system currently works. Every other jurisdiction in Canada has such a thing in place. So essentially, we're competing with these other jurisdictions on some level. So whatever we can do to give us a competitive advantage for industry will be a great thing for that, too. And obviously, from an experience standpoint as well, the more films and more TV shows that are built here and, and produced here and filmed here is the more experience for those crews and for those directors such as yourself to, to get some of that talent in and around that, you know, it might not be in front of the camera, but might be behind the camera that all of a sudden they're going to benefit from this as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's just volume, consistency. All those things lend itself to good industry uh, building and practices. What would so you the like- more things we can do to support that, the better. Mm-hmm. What would you like to see happen over the next year or so that would really kind of uh, keep the momentum going and kickstart things and make sure that we're, we're still heading down the right path a year from now? Yeah, I guess one thing is to make sure that there's still uh, still the right support in place for... Uh, locally uh, developed and produced shows, so shows that are actually originating from here. Um, And then a consistent TV series or two, another one would be a great thing. And then some sort of, you know, MOW, movie of the week type situation where there was five or ten of them and you knew that contract was in place so that you knew that that was going to happen. You can really build stuff around those things. And then when those other shows, the bigger shows like Jumanji, etc., come in, then you have that really top-notch crew that, you know, is going to just work really well together and uh, give them what they need so that when they leave Calgary and go back to wherever they're from, they're going to say good things about working here. Absolutely. Uh, word of mouth is always the, the best elixir for uh, any kind of business, in my humble opinion. Uh, thank you so much for the time, Michael. Do appreciate it this afternoon. Yeah, hope that helps. Thanks a lot.
Calgary-based director Michael Peterson weighing in on what the film industry and the buzz is all around here as we see a number of high-profile actors and productions being held here in Calgary and and a lot of local productions doing great things as well. I know he's up for uh, a couple of awards and and a couple of different things, so uh, good on for everybody who's been involved in that industry over the last little while. It's certainly uh, the fruits of the labor definitely flowing through now. There are still a lot of questions that need answers, but Calgary Police uh, providing an update today on the disappearance of 25-year-old Jasmine Lovett and her 22-month-old daughter, Aaliyah Sanderson. Now, police believe that disappearance, those disappearances might now be a suspected double homicide. One person is in custody now, although no charges have been laid yet. Police also saying today that the... Uh, uh, both Lovett and her daughter were last seen April 16th. The bank card was used two days later, but police can't confirm it was her using it because it was an online transaction. Now, her footprints of life stopped on the 16th, and her family called police on the 23rd, hence the investigation beginning, and that's when we found out about uh, the call for information. A lot of questions coming in to 403-974-8255, particularly around why an Amber Alert hasn't been called yet. That was one of the questions. You heard the initial statement from Staff Sergeant Martin Chavetta during Rob's show at 3 o'clock. I wanted to bring back that conversation and let you hear some of the questions and some of the answers uh, fielded by, from reporters towards Staff Sergeant Martin Chavetta. Can you just talk a little bit more about the um, last things that you have for banking or, you know, footprints of life? Sure. Um, obviously, uh, we did a very exhaustive investigation into the footprints of life. This including social media, healthcare, phones, banking information. Uh, the fact that um, our victims were not in contact with their, their family, which is very inconsistent. Um, after conducting all those searches, uh, we have not found any footprints of life. And this leads us to believe that um, there is no evidence, evidence to support um, that our victims are alive. Is there any sign that the two days later it was her or was it someone you said? So even though we have activity on our, on our bank card, it was an online purchase. And at this time, we're unable to determine if it was Jasmine using that bank card on April 18th. So the last confirmation that uh, Jasmine and uh, Aaliyah were alive was actually on April 16th. Wondering if you can confirm the police presence at uh, Mosaic Cranston is related to this investigation? I can tell you that we're conducting uh, an investigation in the community of Cranston. As far as exact locations, um, I won't provide that, but we are conducting an extensive search and search warrants in the community of Cranston. What, what about in Bragg Creek? Uh, what, what is it that exactly led uh, investigators to start searching out there? Sure. So through the investigative uh, process and analyzing a number of uh, electronic devices, um, we believe that uh, an area in and around Bragg Creek may provide evidence of our homicides. But can you describe the relationship between the suspect uh, and the victims at all? Yeah, that's still uh, that's still being determined. I can confirm, though, that the suspect in custody, as well as our victims, are known to one another. Um, I mean, how about the father of, of Aaliyah? I mean, have police been in contact with this man at all? Yes, we have. Uh, we have spoken to uh, the bio biological father. Um, he is cooperative, and he is not a suspect at this time. Can you just go through one more time, just like kind of the timeline of the last or last 
So I can confirm that on April 16th, uh, Jasmine and Leah um, are, are live in the community of uh, Cranston. Um, we have uh, Jasmine's bank card being used for an online purchase on the 18th, but we still can't determine if that was her who was purchasing. And um, police responded uh, to her residence uh, in the community of Cranston the night of April 23rd based on concerns from her immediate family that she failed to show for a, uh, a pre-planned family dinner. Um, another question that we were seeing on some of our readers as well was why there was no Amber Alert. Uh, was that just due to the time between she went missing? I mean, what is, what's the There are a number of strict criteria that require, are required for an Amber Alert. Uh, in this case, um, those criteria uh, were not met and we did not believe even early into the investigation from the missing person component that th this was an abduction. Does this have any uh, echoes for the investigators when you think about the uh, Downey case? There's certainly a, a lot of similarities. A lot of the investigators that are currently working this file um, did work that one. And obviously, any investigation involving a child um, is extremely difficult. A lot of the members within the homicide unit um, have children themselves. Takes its toll. Uh, absolutely. Are you doing a forensic um, search at a house in Cranston right now? We're currently working with our crime scenes unit to examine a residence in the community of Cranston. What are you asking the people about? Brad Creek, looking for. We're looking for uh, anything that may have been suspicious between April 16th and uh, <clears throat> April 23rd. Um, anything on their property, um, they can call certainly the Calgary Police uh, or the RCMP. You're not just talking bodies, you're talking potential anything. Evidence, anything related to, and this, sometimes it's the smallest piece of evidence that can assist the investigation. Once again, one of those calls where the smallest piece of information, something that looks out of place, might be the thing that helps crack the case open for investigators. So again, uh, still a lot of questions. And w again, it's it's tough when you've uh, still very fresh in everybody's mind, the results of uh, Sarah Bailey and Talia Marsman's uh, disappearance and the court case that surrounded that. And, and certainly you list off the number of, of cases where uh, people go missing and then all of a sudden they're, they, they become homicide investigations. And so uh, hearts with the family members, hearts with those close to them. And hopefully we get to some sort of conclusion, a happy conclusion when all is said and done. One happy conclusion to pass along to you. Uh, there was an Amber Alert issued earlier today uh, in near Windsor, Ontario. Peel Regional Police now say a five-year-old was found Thursday with his mother in Tilbury, Ontario, nearly 300 kilometers from where they were last seen. It was just hours after that Amber Alert was first issued uh, for the boy and his mother in Mississauga. So police say they found the boy as a direct result of the Amber Alert. So some good news coming out of Ontario on uh, the missing children front this afternoon. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Wanted to touch on a story that has also been followed over the last couple of days. Recent studies conducted by the Organization for the Prevention of Violence indicate a significant increase in reported hate crimes in Alberta and provide recommendations on combating such violence. Recently released OPV report entitled Extremism and Hate-Motivated Violence in Alberta indicates a 78% increase in hate crimes reported to police from 2014 to 2017. 
Now, when you go to globalnews.ca, and I'll post the the link to this story on my Twitter, at Calgary Tay, in just a couple of minutes. But uh, one of the things that we dove into here was specific primary active groups within the typologies that are identifiable, organized, and semi-organized networks in Alberta. Just a few here include Al-Qaeda, affiliates and splinter groups, including ISIS, Al-Shabaab, and Al-Qaeda, Anti-authority, including Freeman on the land and sovereign citizens, far-left extremism like Antifa and anarchists, patriot groups like Three Percenters, uh, Sons and uh, Soldiers of Odin, Canadian infidels, the Klan, a troop North Patriots, Northern Guard, and then you have the white supremacy movement, Blood and Honor, Combat 18, Identitarian uh, Movement, uh, Ethno-Nationalism, and Christian Identity. So no shortage of stuff. I know Rob talked about it on the, on his show yesterday. But it also kind of got brought back into the spotlight thanks to a Reddit post saying the Nazis have come to play in Bridgeland. And that got the attention of Mayor Nahed Nenshi when he was talking about uh, in council chambers today surrounding uh, the pay increases or some of the, the pension reaction, that kind of thing. He was asked about that house. And his quote, pretty straightforward to the point, I'd say. I hadn't heard about that until this minute. Uh, But what it is, is, you know, we have to really be incredibly vigilant about the rise of hatred in our community, not just in our community, everywhere. And there's no more pussyfooting around on this. There's no more being nice about it and talking about, oh, freedom of speech. This is dangerous stuff. And it's important for us to act on it now. And we're seeing a lot of apologia in the media and from politicians saying, oh, it's not a big deal. Oh, the worries on this are overwrought. They're not overwrought. This is super dangerous and it has to be nipped in the bud right away. I tend to agree based simply on the fact that we need to start calling it out case by case. I think it's it's one thing again, and I know that there's going to be the text saying, hey, the left are doing it or hey, the right's doing it. Hey, there's, there's definitely extremists on both sides of the pendulum. And for one, let's call it out individual by individual. Number two, do not paint the brush. Like, don't say, hey, everybody on the left is clearly Antifa. On the flip side, don't say everyone on the right is a uh, white supremacist. It just doesn't fly because I think the vast majority of Canadians have gotten past that point. It's important for all of us to identify when that hatred is being spewed and to call it out on an individual basis. And I will agree with one extent. If you're silent about it, if you're kind of putting a blind eye to it, that's willful ignorance. Stop allowing it to happen. That's the point. Uh, Again, one of the things during the election campaign, the mayor and I got into this conversation uh, off record and he's like, hey, do you want, I want to come on the show and talk about this because it's a, it's something that is very real. And judging by that comment, yeah, I think he, he wants to bring it up. So at some point, I think we're going to have to have him on just to, to open some eyes more than anything else. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. I want to turn your attention to a story that I was reading with with great interest is members of Calgary's LGBTQ community creating a queer straight alliance to share their stories with youth in an effort to bridge the gap with older generations. Nathan Fawuz is one of the organizers of Stronghold, holding its first meeting May 14th at Western Canada High School. And Nathan joins us now on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Talk about the creation of Stronghold and what it's all about. 
Absolutely. So, um, you know, we're a little bit by the seat of our pants. Uh, we're responding uh, to some feelings that have come out of youth LGBTQ2 plus community um, who've been really concerned about uh, the possibility of themselves and their friends being inadvertently outed uh, as a result of some of the UCP election promises. And so, you know, I grew up in Alberta uh, during the Klein years, and obviously our community has lived and thrived and flourished in Alberta since the beginning of Alberta, since before Alberta, really. So um, it occurred to me that these youth are facing for the first time um, some some structural uh, resistance that, that they hadn't experienced before. And uh, I thought maybe it would be good to get generations of folks together to uh, talk about uh, resilience, you know, responding to fear as opposed to, you know, just kind of being in a sort of knee-jerk cycle of threat and reaction. How important is it for you to have an open conversation with the different generations versus, uh, I kept referring to it during the, the course of the election campaign, as being more within your own echo chambers and not being willing to expand uh, your horizons in terms of what the world is like out there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I like. I feel that as people, we have some really common values. You know, we all want to live. We all want to love and be loved. We all want to be well-resourced and comfortable, but we have some disagreements about strategy. And I think that if we can separate disagreements about strategy with threats to our identity, then we have the opportunity to kind of move in a, in a new direction where we can we can all find a little space for ourselves. And we can't do that without talking to each other. How much of it is kind of an eye-opening experience, not just for those who might be a little bit older, but also for you guys, you as, as somebody who is trying to advocate, but also to have that open conversation? Uh, well, I mean, eye-opening, you said it. It's, um, you know, we're, we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and we all do not have the capacity to imagine into the future in the way that our youth do. So it's a very, it's been a very expansive process so far. Talk about the, the process that you've gone through to this point and some of the things that you've taken away from even just the first initial stages. As you said, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants, but you're also kind of learning on the fly as well. Yeah, that's that's exactly true. I mean, I'm an introvert by nature, so <laughs> all of this is really new to me. Um, but uh I think that the key learning points uh, for me and the part that I'm the most pleased about is that, you know, universally people have responded really positively to this initiative. Anybody I've talked to about it just really wants to get involved. Um, And, you know, while we are um, an organization that is deeply committed to an anti-oppressive practice, um, that doesn't mean it's about siloing folks off and saying entire groups of people uh, can't be involved. It's about being really careful about how we're, how we're structuring uh, our events and how we're structuring our conversations so that the container is respectful um, of everybody involved and so that folks who maybe have been more vulnerable in the past have centered voices um, and, and a really hands-on uh, connection to what's happening and how this process is unfolding. So um, for me, there's just been a lot of of learning around how to listen in order to create that kind of structure. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary today.